Please take your Bibles and turn to the fifth chapter of Second Kings. As I've mentioned on the last um, two occasions that we've looked at Second Kings, there are a series of miracles in this book that are attributed to Elisha, but are in fact <clears throat> really manifestations of the grace of God. And I pointed out that the purpose of the miracles is not primarily to show that God has the power to do miraculous things, but uh, their purpose is to reveal something of his loving and gracious character. It's hard to fall in love with raw power. It's not approachable. But when we see the real meaning of these, uh, of these miracles and we see something of, of God's wonderful grace and his care and his concern for us, uh, it makes us want to draw near. We want to worship him. And we have a wonderful example of that this morning in the story of uh, Naaman. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of, king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar? the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel. Can't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a little child. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Naaman was uh, 
the commander of the Syrian army. The term Aram is used here for Syria, but uh, the terms are interchangeable in, in the Old Testament. It's basically the uh, same country that's known as Syria today with Damascus as the, uh, as the capital. This man was the uh, commander-in-chief of the, of the Syrian army. I think of him as uh, Stormin Naaman. He's described as, uh, as a great man through whom God had given victory to Syria. It's an interesting way to put it. Uh, the rabbis believed that this was the fellow that shot the random arrow into the air during the Battle of Ramoth Gilead. You may remember the story when we were looking at the life of Elijah. Some soldier whose name was, is not mentioned just happened to, by chance, shoot an arrow into the air. And it came down and struck Ahab, the king of Israel, between the chinks in his armor. And it was a mortal wound. He died later in, in the day. That lucky shot was probably, probably the thing that catapulted him into a position of prominence. He rose rapidly into the, uh, through the ranks and he became the uh, commander of the army. He was a man with uh, power and prestige and and all the perquisites that go with that uh, position that he had. But he was a leper. All discolored and with lesions and, and stumps for fingers. Just a grisly caricature of, of what a man was intended to be. And furthermore, he knew that uh, he was terminal. He only had uh, five to ten uh, years uh, to live. It's odd, isn't it, how a little little bacillus can bring a, a big man down. I, was, I read a couple of weeks ago of the uh, death of Jim Valvano, who was the coach of the Northern, uh, North uh, uh, Carolina State basketball team and was for a long time an announcer for ESPN, who just recently died of cancer. And my uh, thoughts went back to a statement that he made uh, a couple of, of years ago when he said, I'm going to stay in, in the coaching business until I'm 52. I want, I, want to win, I want to win three national championships, and uh, then I'll, uh, I'll pack it in. And here's the man that uh, also had it all and, and just a, a little pathogen brought him down. And this was true of Naaman. He was, he was a desperate man. No one is uh, great in the face of death. But God had a solution to Naaman's problems. A little girl, a little missionary that he had planted in his house, a little, little Jewish uh, maiden. The, uh, the account is sparse. You know, we don't have all the details. It's very concise. We don't know anything of the terror of her kidnapping and, you know, the abduction itself. It must have been a frightening event and, and the crushing grief of her parents and her own terror at being in a strange place and separated from her family. None of that is specified in the story. We're simply told that she was there in, in the home. And she didn't have any of that bitterness that you usually associate with people that have been treated in, in this way. She loved her master and she loved her mistress and she wanted to do something uh, for uh, Naaman. And so she said on one occasion, Oh, that my master could just, and literally the text says, see the face of, of, of Elisha, the prophet who is in, uh, in Israel, in Samaria, the capital of 
of Israel. And the way it's put suggests that there was a quiet desperation, not only in her, but also in Naaman. He had apparently been appealing to the gods of, of uh, Syria for a cure. Whenever they excavate these uh, temples in this part of the world, invariably they find little tablets that are shaped like body parts and sometimes infected body parts that represented the, uh, you know, the afflictions that people had, the illnesses that they had during those times. And inscribed on the, on the tablet would be a plea for healing. And apparently Naaman, time and again, had brought his prayers to the God of, of Syria, and, and no one could help him. There was simply no earthly cure for leprosy. Leprosy today is not as widespread, and it's treatable now. But in Naaman's day, it was terminal. He knew that uh, he would, would soon die. and He was desperate. The little girl saw that. Uttered this wish to her mistress. She passed it on to Naaman. Naaman went to the king, who was probably the man we know in history as Ben-Hadad, a very powerful king of that day. And, and he sent him uh, letters of, self, of uh, safe conduct and sent a small army with him, bodyguards, to protect him because Israel and and Syria were not on good terms. And Naaman made his way down to Samaria to the king. When the king opened the letter, he panicked, tore his, tore his robes, because he thought that, uh, that Ben-Hadad was expecting him to cure a disease that was incurable. You see, in, in, in the ancient world, these oriental kings were always uh, allied with their priests and prophets. They were always very close to them. And Ben-Hadad assumed that that would be true of Jehoram, that he'd be very close to his God and very close to the prophets. But that wasn't the case at all. Jehoram didn't believe in the prophets. He didn't have any confidence in, in Elisha. Here's a case where a man knew more but believed less than his pagan counterpart. Ben-Hadad actually believed that there was someone in the court who could do something about Naaman's uh, leprosy and Joram didn't have any confidence whatever in the Lord or in, in the Lord's uh, prophet. So he panicked. This guy's trying to pick a fight with me, he said. And Elisha caught wind of what was happening in the court. He sent a message to send him down to me. I'll take care of the situation. So Naaman went down to Elisha's house, somewhere located somewhere on the outskirts of Samaria, took his chariots and his horses with him, and he appeared before the house and and uh, summoned Elisha to come out. Elisha didn't come out. He stayed in the house. He just sent God's word out to Naaman. He said, go, go and be washed in the Jordan seven times and you will be cleansed. Naaman was incensed. There are a couple of clues in, in the text that tell us how enraged he really was and how important, how self-important he was. He says, surely I thought he would come out. And, and the, the phrase stresses the idea that, uh, that Elisha was obligated to come out. He thought of, of Elijah as someone vastly inferior to him. He was a great man, and, and Elisha was obliged to come out and, and meet his needs. And, and furthermore, the phrase, to me, in the text is put at the very beginning. It stresses the idea, you know, the likes of me, someone like me. He was just absolutely outraged that Elisha wouldn't come out. Elisha didn't come out not because he was intimidated by Naaman or because he was untouched by his infirmities. The reason he didn't come out is because he wanted to stay in the background. 
He didn't want to be noticed. He became the invisible man because he wanted Naaman to know that it was God and God alone who affected his, uh, his healing. It's a good lesson for all of us, really. We should, we should never attract attention to ourselves by our mannerisms or address or anything else. Our goal is to draw people's eyes to the Savior. We need to stay in the background and, and simply proclaim his word. This is what Elisha did. Just go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times and, and you'll be cleansed. I've, I've seen the Jordan River. I've actually, just for the fun of it, dipped myself seven times in the Jordan River. And I can tell you there's nothing pleasant about that river. I can see some of you nodding your heads. You've seen it. It's this greasy, gray, sluggish body of water that looks like liquid mud. And uh, Naaman was used to the rivers of, of Syria that flowed down from the flanks of of Mount Hermon from the snow fields. You know, they looked a lot like our rivers here, the South Fork of the Boise and some of the, the, the salmon, some of the really beautiful streams here in, in Idaho. And uh, he wanted nothing to do with that, with that Jordan River. But some of his servants said, uh, Naaman, if Elisha asked you to do some really hard thing, wouldn't you do it? How much more if he simply asked you to go dip in, in this river? See, the issue was not that it was too hard for Naaman to do, it was too humbling. And the interesting thing about the text is that it says that Naaman went down to the Jordan. He humbled himself. He saw that there was, he had no other recourse. There was no other answer to his, to his sickness. He was a dying man. The only answer was was the answer that God had given to him. And so he went down to the Jordan and he dipped in the river. And, and the text says he came up with the flesh of a little child and he was clean. And he worshipped. He worshipped the God of Israel. Well, I didn't read the passage, but, but later it tells us that he wanted a piece of earth. He just dug up some earth and put it in boxes and carried it back to, back to Syria and and uh, set up his own uh, altar so that he could uh, worship the God of, of Israel. And we say, well, that's, that's, that's an interesting story. It's a wonderful story. But so what? What are the implications for us? Well, they center around this whole matter of, of leprosy because leprosy in the Old Testament has a, has a significant meaning. Of, of all the diseases, leprosy is the only one that's singled out and linked with sin. It's, to, it's, a, it's described as a, as a dirty disease that requires cleansing. Those that have leprosy were described as, as unclean, which is the antithesis of, of holy, pure, separated unto God. And wherever it shows up in the Old Testament, it is a symbol of the ugliness and the awfulness of sin. Now, it's not that leprosy itself is sinful or that sin will necessarily lead, uh, would cause you to contract leprosy, although there are a couple of cases of that sort of thing happening in, in the Old Testament, but rather it's a, it is a symbol of the, of the disgusting, fetid quality of sin. If we could really see sin and if we could see the effects of it and if we could see the impact that it has upon us and upon others, then it would look somewhat like an advanced case of leprosy. 
with all the ugliness and the discolorations and the open sores and the lesions and the tumorous swellings and growth and the disfiguration and the, the, the loss of limbs and the, just the, the, the horrible mess that it makes of, of a human being. Our sin looks like that to God and it ought to look like that to us. See, that's the other side of grace. We not only need to see the enormity of God's goodness and His grace, we need to see the enormity of our sin, the ugliness of it, and what it really looks like to God if we can see it as, as He sees it. You know, we think of our sin, you know, whatever it is, complaining, griping, gossiping, telling little fibs. Those are just picadillos. God says, no, it looks like leprosy to me. There's a story in the Old Testament about Miriam and Moses. Um, Miriam got on Moses' case, accused him of uh, taking too much on himself, acquiring too much power, thought it had all gone to his head. And text tells us what was going on underneath. It's not obvious from her accusation, but, but the cause that was underlying her accusation was that Miriam was a racist. Text tells us that she got on. Uh, she was upset with, with Moses because he had married an Ethiopian woman, a black woman, and Miriam couldn't handle that, and she broke out with leprosy. Because God wanted Miriam to see, and the whole nation of Israel, He wanted us to see what a terrible thing racism is. You see, people are the most, most wonderful things. They. They're God's most important product, and for us to demean anyone is sinful and wrong. For us to, you know, ethnic jokes and humor that puts people down, sinful and wrong, looks like leprosy. In God's eyes, people are, are his most important product, and he loves them. The most wretched individual on the face of the earth is more beautiful to God than a sunset is to us, because people are very special to him, you see. And we think of racism as just, uh, you know, a slight form of elitism, but God says it looks just like leprosy to me. It's terrible stuff. It's ugly. Awful. has to be cured. has to be dealt with. Lepers in Israel were treated, I don't know how they were treated in, throughout the Gentile world, but in Israel they were treated uh, differently. They were quarantined because that's what sin does. It separates us from one another. They wore clothes of perpetual mourning because that's, uh, again, it lets us know that sin is terminal. The wages of sin is death. It kills us. They wore dust and ashes on their heads as a sign of, of mourning. And they went through the streets saying, unclean, unclean, unclean. And that's what we ought to be doing. See. We ought to recognize our uncleanness. Luther said, we are dust and ashes, and full of sin. We are rotten to the core. Oh, you say, but we're very valuable. That's true, we are. We're God's most uh, important products. We're made in the image of God. We're the most godlike beings on the face of the earth. But because of our fall, our hearts are desperately wicked, and we are filthy and rotten and sinful to the core. And we've got to see it. We've got to see it. And if we don't see it, 
God will see to it that we do see it. And in my experience, what God does is to expose us. Remember Aslan's claws? Rip the flesh right off of Edmund. And that's what, that's what God does to us. He lets us get into situations where we make such terrible fools of ourselves, where all the ugliness within just comes out. You know, I have these thoughts, and I don't judge them because I don't see the severity of them. And then I lose it, and I say them, and it comes out, and I say, Ah, that is yucky. That is terrible. And I'm humiliated and embarrassed in front of my friends. It's the best thing that ever happened to me because I see what I'm really like. It all, it all comes out. One of my favorite uh, poems is, uh, are some lines from John Newton. I, I, read, I read this to you before some years ago. Anyone ought to have known this principle. It was uh, John Newton who was a slave trader for years, even as a Christian. He traded slaves until he saw the, the, the horror of his sin. He said, I ask the Lord that I may grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I thought that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's transforming power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of that, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and bade the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Nay, more with his hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue this worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from sin and self to set thee free and cross thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou might find thy all in me. You see what he's saying? The, the steps to the throne of grace go down. Not up. If, if we will not deal with our sin, God will bring it out into the open where we must deal with it. And we come to the place that like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, we stand before the Lord, we stand before everyone, and we say, I'm David, I'm a sinner. We simply have to face the results of, of our sin. The way to the heart of God is through humility and contrition. And one of the reasons, my friends, we very often feel so guilty is that we have never been willing to face the enormity of our sin and in humility and contrition to kneel at his feet. The way to the heart of God is through contrition and humility. There is no other way. And when we come on that basis, when we are willing to go down, then we have that wonderful sense of forgiveness. If we confess our sins, John says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I've said so many times, we cannot out the grace of God. He knows our hearts. He knows exactly what we do and think and, and what we intend to do. He knows that our hearts are 
desperately wicked, as Jeremiah said. He's well aware of our sin. He just wants us to acknowledge it, confess it, call it what it is, kneel at his feet, and receive forgiveness. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin. The story of Naaman reminds me of another story that took place in another time in another place. It's the story of our Lord and his contact with the leper. You remember the story? We, when we were looking at the miracles, we talked about uh, our Lord's cleansing of the leper who was out on the outskirts of the, of the, of the crowd. He was, he was ostracized. He was quarantined. No one could touch him. No one could have anything to do with him. He edged his way closer to the Lord as, as the Lord was teaching and finally summoned all of his courage and he burst through the crowd and he dropped on his hands and knees before the Lord and he said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. There's a wonderful simplicity in that faith. He knew the Lord could cleanse him. He knew he could. The question was, would he? Would the Lord have compassion on on the likes of him? And Luke, in his account of the story, says our Lord was moved with compassion. Saw that man on his knees, crying out for help. And he was moved with compassion. And uh, most of the translations say he reached out and touched him. That's a terrible translation. It's the word that's used in Matthew when uh, Mary hugged the Lord when he came out of the tomb. And he said, uh, and this is the way most of the, of the uh, uh, translations uh, uh, deal with the phrase. He said, don't cling to me. It means to hug. Our Lord didn't just reach out tentatively and touch him. He hugged him. He threw his arms around this ugly, grisly, horrible, awful man and clung to him and cleansed him of his, uh, of his leprosy. Ever been hugged by God? It's a wonderful thing to be hugged by God. That comes when we're willing to see ourselves for what we really are and we come to him and we ask and receive that grace that he so wonderfully bestows. I want us to sing a hymn in preparation for our time around the Lord's table this morning. As we sing it, I want to ask the men and women to come forward who are going to distribute the elements. <clears throat> the hymn is the one that Dan Cunningham sang for us last week, Just As I Am, Without One Plea. And he pointed out something that's not widely known about this hymn. Uh, Charlotte Elliott is the author, and she wrote this hymn not for unbelievers, but for believers. It is true for unbelievers. And if you're out there this morning and you are feeling the infinite weight of your sin and you don't know what to do with it, then you can come just as you are without one plea and receive God's grace with the same humbling, the same contrition that characterized Naaman. But the hymn was written not just for those that are not yet in the family of God. It's written for those of us in the family of God who also feel the weight of our sin and who try to justify it and excuse it and defend it in various ways. The song tells us, don't try to clean up your act. Don't try to have more spit and polish. Don't gussy yourself up. Just come as you are 
without one plea. Let him see the awfulness of your life. He already sees it. As G.K. Chesterton said, no one is any good until they know how bad they really are. And that's where we have to begin. We have to know how bad, how evil, how rotten we really are. And we come to the Lord in humility. He receives us just as we are. Father, what Isaiah tells us is true. Like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But you laid on our Savior the iniquity of us all. We want to thank you for that this morning. Amen.